God of Mila Mahagut. You fizzy beasts. You stinking deacons. You've done it. We are 16 weeks at number one in the podcast charts. We have beat the record set by Brian Adams with his number one hit, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, from the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves soundtrack. Thank you so much. We have achieved this because you have followed the guidebook of being a sound cunt. You've been subscribing to the podcast. You've been telling friends about it. And you've been leaving delicious, buttery reviews about the podcast. And for this I am eternally grateful. We must now bask. We must now bask in the, in the mutual... The mutual success and feel the podcast sunshine. As it warms our backs and legs. Despite the howling winds... Of the February moors. But thank you so much. You glamorous bastards. 16 weeks at number one. I didn't, uh, I didn't expect this. Didn't expect it at all. Like I've said many, many times. I just started this podcast to promote my book. And it has grown. Oh so beautifully. Every week. To become, uh. To be honest, to become a meditative space for myself, you know. It's somewhere where I um, can offload my hot takes. Into the digital airwaves. Into the electronic universe. Into your heads. And it's good crack. So please continue to subscribe to this podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, please do. Um, The reason I say that... Is because mainly because Facebook has gone to shit. I've got half a million followers on Facebook, but they've made some changes to their algorithm in the past six months. Which means that if I post on Facebook, only about 10 people see it, unless I spend a lot of money to promote that post. And Twitter's doing alright, but you can't trust these social media sites. But what you can trust is subscriptions. So, please do subscribe to this podcast, whether you're using it on Acast or iTunes. Because then you'll get a weekly notification. Also, this podcast does not have a sponsor currently. It is supported by a Patreon account. Which is patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. And if you'd like to contribute to that Patreon, the equivalent of a... buying me a cup of tea once a month or a pint or a Mars bar please do but again you don't have to it's a a suggested donation based on soundness if you can't afford to donate doesn't matter I don't mind if you want to listen for free that's cool that's alright with me I'm non-stop listening to shit for free and I give cunts nothing if you're new to the podcast last week last week um we spoke about a mug that I bought that confronted me with a sense of fragile masculinity which made me internally angry and I projected this anger onto an otter. 
and I still have the mug of fragile masculinity. It's a stainless steel vacuum mug and I've been getting good mileage out of it. Very, very good mileage indeed. I have not been using this mug in an outdoor setting as it is intended but I've been using it indoors because it keeps my tea hot for ages which is beautiful. But alas, one downfall of this mug its insulation is so effective that the outside of it is freezing. So while I'm drinking a hot drink, it does in fact make my hands cold, which is a torturous dichotomy in this mug. As you'll know, I had a lash at dry January. Went the whole month without any drink. So then February came around and I had an enjoyable drink. I went to the bar in Limerick called Pharmacia that I've mentioned earlier, previous podcasts. And I had my beautiful zombie cocktail, which is my favourite drink, I think, next to Polish cans. And zombie's an interesting drink. It's got three different types of rum, bit of pineapple juice, a little touch of cinnamon and some other flavours that I don't know. Bit of grenadine. Don't think grenadine tastes like anything. It's just uh, the juice of a pomegranate. I love the word pomegranate. The word grenadine sounds like grenade for a reason. Pomegranate, when you open it up, it's a piece of fruit that has all these little seeds in the inside, these little bloody seeds. And when they first invented the grenades in the late 19th century they named them after the pomegranate because it's this little ball with ball bearings inside of it it'll rip your face off but I digress I had the most beautiful zombie in pharmacia last week because it was my first drink in an entire month and I savoured it gently and the lads in pharmacia had gotten uh, tiki glasses in there finally which are very fancy kind of ceramic mugs that are a hyper real simulacra of Polynesian wood carvings but on the top of a zombie cocktail there's a a flaming what do you call them a flaming passion fruit right also as well I am noting the irony that while last week I was drinking tea in the wilderness uh, this very masculine mug which affirmed my masculinity my nighttime tipple is probably the most feminine looking drink you could possibly imagine it's got pink umbrellas hanging out of it like but it does come with a flaming passion fruit at the top and this passion fruit is filled with what's called overproof rum which is rum that's 100% I think it's about 80% or 100% if you drink it it, it it tastes like paint thinner so what you do is you fuck that into the zombie rather than dr- drink it straight but as I sipped this overproof rum it got me thinking about Pudgeen now Irish listeners will know exactly what I'm talking about when I'm talking Pudgeen Pudgeen is it's fair. It's not a mythical Irish drink, but it's near mythical. 
It's Irish moonshine. It's illegally distilled. Spirits. A clear drink. That's uh, gets its name from the pot that it's made in. And it can be made from a number of things. Potatoes, molasses, sugar beet. It tends to be made from whatever the putchine maker has at that moment in time that he's making it. Now, speaking again about how different drinks can have uh, connotations regarding gender stereotypes, you know? Putchine is certainly considered a hard man's Irish drink, you know, because it's illegal. If you have putchine in your possession, then it means you know someone who makes it. And in the cities in particular, it's impossible to find. If you're at a lock-in in Ireland and someone has putchine, you know, you're kind of whispered, you're whispered away, you're whispered away to a corner. As if the person's got a big load of Bolivian cocaine or something. It's like, he's got putchine. Shh, shh, he's got putchine. He's got putchine. Who's got putchine? And then everyone runs away to the corner very quietly. And a lot of lads pretend that they like it. Pretend that they like drinking this neat fluid that could potentially blind you. It is the height of masculinity. When people aren't drinking putchine, the other thing they say is that, oh, I have it for my muscles. Irish men, in particular, lads who were playing hurling and stuff out the country they'll often order a bottle of putchine or if they get caught by the guards with a bottle of putchine they'll say oh I'm not drinking it guard I'm not drinking it it's for my muscles and they will get the putchine and rub it into their muscles as a way to relieve pain from the hurling pitch now I don't know whether it works or not having a clue there was a man in West Cork who used to mix putchine with horses piss and then have his wife rub it all over his back. That man was my father. But interestingly, what got me thinking about Pochine and its connotations of masculinity and hard man Irishness and GAA and nearly Irish nationality is Pochine makers. Right now, Pochine's been made for fucking years. Hundreds and hundreds of years, Pochine has been made. But there is something specifically unique historically about putchine makers, which is quite interesting. Now, what this is, is back in the day, and it's tradition, when the lads used to be making putchine, how they'd do it is they'd have this pot still. It would usually be kind of portable, fashioned out of tin or copper or whatever they could. And they'd have a peat fire underneath it. And they'd create what's known as the mash, I think it is, which was the mixture of spuds or barley or whatever you have. And from boiling this up, this fermented mash, they would distill it down into pure alcohol. And there was a a specific ritual when puccine was being made that when the puccine maker would put his cup out at the bottom of the spout to test the first drops of pure alcohol that come out when the alcohol is dropped into the cup before he would take a sip 
out of this putchine. He would fuck a little bit over his shoulder. The reason being is that we're talking a good few hundred years ago, lads. The putchine maker, he understood the ritual and process of what he was doing, but he didn't necessarily understand the science of it. This was before the Enlightenment even, and we're talking the fucking back hours of Ireland with no education. So putchine makers genuinely believed that they were interfering with the world of the fairies and the spirits and the unseen powers that dominated the wilderness of Ireland. They thought that what they were performing was witchcraft or alchemy. So out of superstition, they would never take the first sip of that putchine that came out of the still. They'd throw it over their shoulder for the fairies. And this is one of the reasons why distilled alcohol is called spirits, you know? The first record of distilled alcohol being called spirits goes back to the Greeks because there's a record of Aristotle talking about the process of distillation and Aristotle said that drinking distilled wine or beer it puts spirits into the body of the person drinking it. Now Aristotle is fucking he's three four hundred years before Christ now, it's, and nobody's sure who fully invented distillation because it was either the Greeks or uh, some Islamic lad because Islam back in the day were pretty shit hot at their chemistry. But anyway, same thing goes for the Irish puchine maker. They truly believed that they were magicians but they had a sense of shame about it. They felt that they were stealing these spirits from the fairies. So they'd fuck it over the shoulder to give the little bit to the fairies. But what they were also doing was they were protecting themselves from the fairies' wrath. Okay? Fairies are a a big thing in Irish folklore. A superstition that still exists today. Fairy forts are little gatherings of rocks which are considered to be the meeting place of fairies. And even five, six years ago, lads, there was a motorway being built in Ireland... And there were huge protests to have it diverted because the motorway would have went over a fairy fort. But Pochine makers, the makers of this traditionally masculine drink, one thing they used to also do is if that they had a male child, they would dress that male child up as a woman, as a young girl. And they would do this because... They thought they were stealing Pochine from the fairies. And that doing this process of making Pochine would make them victims of the fairies. That the fairies would come in the night and they would replace their child with what's known as a changeling. A changeling is like a goblin child in Irish mythology. Unfortunately, what makes it kind of sad is that we now understand that this was merely an irrational response to huge massive infant mortality that would have been in Ireland over the past few hundred years Ireland had some of the worst infant mortality in western Europe because the place was so poor so when a mother woke up in the morning and her child was dead what the parents would say to themselves to 
kind of protect themselves from pain is that the, the child that's lying dead is not a dead child but rather uh, a changeling that the fairies have come in the night and taken away that healthy child and taken it off into the forest never to be seen again and replaced that child with a kind of a strange clone a strange copy of the child that's dead and that's what they used to do to make themselves feel better because they'd nothing else so Puccine makers in particular felt that they were susceptible to their children being turned into changelings so they would dress their male children as boys or as girls and sometimes dress their female children as boys to confuse the fairies also what it accounts for is um, a lack of understanding in maybe mental disabilities or if a child had autism back then or if a child maybe was born with Down syndrome and they didn't understand it they would say that this was a changeling child the Puccine makers were also denounced from the pulpit because the priests believed that the Puccine makers were fucking with the spirit world and this is a a common theme throughout the world in history regarding any any process that was highly highly skilled whereby the artisans who were performing the craft understood how to arrive at the end result but they didn't fully know what it was they were doing they didn't understand the mechanics of what they were doing they didn't know why Japanese sword making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds even thousands of years old it's an incredibly complex feat of metallurgy and the ancient Japanese were you know they were forging fucking steel you know mixing iron and carbon and getting steel as an end result which is very complex but what they had around the Japanese sword making ceremony could last several weeks and it involved in the process many various religious rituals that seem completely unnecessary to the process which they are and they made the process of making a sword a lot longer than it is but it's because number one they thought they were performing magic they thought it was religiously divine steel and number two without the understanding of the exact scientific process of what they were doing they needed repetitive religious ritual so that the recipe for this sword never ever got lost that's all they had because they didn't have the scientific method as such but back to drink because think of it lads like what 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 else what else is is putting going to be or whiskey you know you've no science you've no understanding and all of a sudden you have this unbelievably hot liquid that gets you on your ear pissed takes you off to another level of course you're going to think it's magic I mean people rarely got their hands on distilled spirits something that would make you drunk that quickly until of course the and this is a separate podcast altogether because it's so interesting but the impact of gin on London gin was the first kind of spirit to be industrially mass produced and this happened around the early to mid industrial revolution but when the availability of cheap gin hit the slums of London where you had factories emerging 
and people living in slums with very very long hours very sad lives and poor working conditions when gin hit those streets the gin ec- epidemic of London in the 17th 18th century was like a heroin epidemic a crack epidemic the world had not seen such large scale extreme violent destructive alcoholism because before that people didn't really have access to spirits now the other thing as well though people in middle ages especially in cities everyone was always a little bit pissed including children because drinking water was unsafe so they often drank a kind of a weak 2% beer as their daily fluid so everyone was a little bit pissed but when gin hit that fucking ravished the gaff gin gin can go fuck itself in 2018 as well to be honest lads there's gin popping up everywhere there's craft gin popping up out of fucking golf course holes and it's bullshit like I mean gin is only it's industrial alcohol soaked in nettles do you know and then put into a fancy a fancy fucking bottle and they charge you 60 quid for it there's one or two nice gins but don't be fooled by gin don't be fooled by craft gin you could make that yourself not a bother. White spirits and a dog leaf. But back to what I mentioned earlier, the changelings. And the fear that the Puccine maker had that by interfering with the spirit world and the fairy world, that the fairies would take his children away and make them changelings. And how this was just was this was just a coping mechanism to understand many medical woes that medicine did not have answers for at the time and it reminds me of a particularly disturbing murder case from 1895 the murder of Bridget Cleary in Tipperary and Bridget was murdered by her husband Michael and this is a trial that was so bizarre that it gained international attention so Bridget had been had been sick. Um we're unsure as to what exactly was wrong with her. The reports would suggest uh there was a physical element to it, but mostly a behavioural change. And Michael, either in his anger, in his grief, in his superstition, I don't know, believed that it was not actually his wife that was present. He believed that his wife had been taken by the fairies and a changeling was left in her place. Now you've heard the phrase away with the fairies. Something that we, kind of a disparaging term that we would say to somebody who's suffering a mental illness. We will say that they're away with the fairies. Well Michael believed that Bridget was indeed away with the fairies. She, that the fairies had taken her. So he became angry with his sick wife and it started off he tried to get the priest over to give her communion that didn't work but mostly Michael's suspicions lay not in we said the Catholicism because that's the interesting thing about Ireland especially rural Ireland going back a few hundred years the church tried their best with Catholicism and a lot of it stuck but fairy mythology and ancient mythology and superstition about fairies and goblins and banshees you could never take that away 
So Michael threw a cup of piss on his wife. For whatever reason, I don't know. And then he chased her around the house with a burning piece of wood. Her dress ended up catching fire. And there were other people in the house who tried to stop, tried to put Bridget out. But Michael was like, no, 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 it's not Bridget. Leave her burn. It's not Bridget. This is a fairy. This is a changeling. So he threw lamp lamp oil on her. And she burnt to death. He burnt her to death. Believing that he was burning the changeling to death. And her body was found, her burnt body was found in a shallow grave. Um, And it pained the judge. The judge... The judge nearly got caught up in the story of changelings and didn't know what to do with it. He was eventually found guilty of uh, manslaughter and he got 15 years in Port Leash prison until 1910. But that's the danger, that's the danger of that, that changeling shit. That's what it did. You'll still see... You'll see analogues of it today, especially with infant mortality and angel readings and angel cards now I don't want to be shitting on people who if you know if people get a bit of solace for believing in angels or fucking around with angel cards or if they get solace from crystals or crystal healing if someone's doing that and that's getting them through their life if that's bringing a bit of comfort and happiness to them and it's not hurting other people, then that's none of my business. Do you know what I'm saying? In the case of Michael Cleary, his belief in fairies, that's absolutely my business, and it's your business, because he murdered his wife because of it. But today we have angel cards, and sometimes parents who lose a child, their way of coping, their way of grieving, is to believe that angels took the child away that the child was an angel that was put on the earth and it was not good enough for the earth so the angels took it away and grief is complicated and grief is weird and if someone wants to believe that and that takes the pain away that's none of my business however if you are a a practitioner of angel readings and angel cards and you are using this profession to earn money from grieving parents, then I think you might be a bit ethically shitty. You know, I hope you enjoy sleeping on your pillow of money from that. But the reason I'm bringing it up is that the changeling is what Jung would call Carl Jung, who I mentioned earlier in a few previous podcasts, the changeling is an archetype. It is an artifact of the collective unconscious mind that always exists throughout humanity. Whether it be a changeling or now whether it be, you know, something like a fucking the angel cards or the angel readings. The Catholic Church have their own equivalent of the changeling. And this took the form of a very a very shitty and evil notion called limbo, which the church were forced to strike out of catechism uh, the past 40 years. But in Ireland in particular, 
if if a young child was not baptized, if a, if a child wasn't baptized, and if that child died before its baptism, it went to a special place called limbo. Now you must remember within Catholicism, all of us are born with a sin, and we're born with the sin. Uh, it was actually it was a sin that was committed by a woman four thousand years ago who ate an apple that was given to her by a snake. And because the snake gave this woman an apple, all of us are born with original sin. We, we are born sinners. And the cure for this is baptism. And the punishment for original sin without forgiveness, without the forgiveness of baptism, is to be sent to a place called limbo, which means in Latin, the edge of hell. So if, if hell is a shopping centre, limbo is the car park. And it's not as bad as hell. But car parks are a pretty shit place for babies. So the parents were told this and they had to live a life of perpetual grief knowing that their child could never achieve communion with God. All because the child hadn't been baptised, you know. The cynic in me would say that who makes money from baptism? The church. So get your child fucking baptised. It also keeps the ch- the children perpetually within the system of the church and perpetually donating and staying, keeping that system of power in place. So the church used the concept of limbo to feed upon the archetype of the changeling to maintain a structure of power. And I have less compassion and understanding for the church doing that than I do for a contemporaneous situation but a set of parents believing in angel cards if that's what gets them through their grief. Hot takes, lads. You know, that's what this podcast is for. It's for hot takes. You know, you should... You should take this podcast with the integrity that you would take Forrest Gump talking to you at a bus stop. But more on... More on the archetypes. I'll do a little bit on archetypes. Because we spoke about Carl Jung few podcasts back I described Jung's model of the collective unconscious through the metaphor of the Yorty Ahern's shoulders peeking above the water so Jung like I said he's got his collective unconscious which is a pool of human consciousness that we all have access to right throughout history all humans it's the psychic equivalent of instinct animals have instinct we have the collective unconscious and because we're a bit more intellectually developed than animals because we use a world of symbols and language because we use language to communicate we have instinctual symbols that are common to all human brains and these are called archetypes and there's many different archetypes and archetypes find their way They find their way to us in stories, in art, in imagery, and through dreams. And the changeling is its one archetype. This mythical creature that plays upon the the inner fear of... I mean, if you take it to an evolutionary level, you know, we're, we're big bags of genes and our purpose is to procreate if we can. And that naturally follows, you know, like humans, 
more than any animals, the human children stay with the parent for fucking years and years and years because of the size of the human brain. A cat will get rid of a child in a fucking five months. But humans need children for years. So, Jung would probably say that the changeling archetype exists as a way for us to protect and preserve children. So our irrational and terrible fears of losing a child will manifest itself, that fear will manifest itself with the changeling archetype. And like I said, that archetype, its central tenets never change. The language of how we describe the changeling archetype that develops depending on the society we live in. So the Puccine makers had the fairy changeling. Catholic Church had limbo. Nowadays we've got angel cards and angel readings. Like another thing that changelings were often accused of doing in Irish mythology was that a changeling would... They'd sneak in in the night time and they might secretly impregnate your wife or they'd steal your husband's sperm and then you what would be born is a changeling child a child that is half fairy and half human a form of cuckolding maybe the uh, the modern alt-right obsession with being a cuck is just the because of current politics uh, the the current archetypal form of the changeling there's a boiling hot take that's so hot I'm going to put it down for a few minutes but the the changeling fear of you know the, the changelings or the fairies secretly impregnating a human and this still exists today in alien abduction stories when people recount dreams that they've had where they've been abducted by aliens and they try and recount usually through psychoanalytic therapy what the aliens want. They will say that the aliens, they took me onto a spaceship and they stole my sperm because they want to create a race of half alien, half human. Sure, that's no different than what they were saying three, four hundred years ago with the fucking changelings. It's just the language has changed to accommodate technology and culture. Also, another archetype that has existed throughout history is the hag, it's known as. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis is an interesting one. I've only gotten it a couple of times. Usually when I sleep on my back, about 40% of people get it. Basically, you go to sleep, you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't move. You're in a kind of a half dream, half awake state. You're aware that you're in the room. You kind of want to scream and move, but you can't. Some people experience it so intensely that they hallucinate that another figure is in the room with them and they feel great terror. Now that's a complex kind of mixture between the archetype of the dream state and then just the physical, what it takes to fucking sleep. Um, When you go to sleep, your brain switches off your muscles for the simple reason that if you're running in your dream, you don't want to run in bed or you'll wake yourself up. So your brain switches off. Sometimes we wake up and this little switch in our brain that shuts off our muscles, that switches on after we wake up. But some people do get intense hallucinations that feel very real, that there is something, a presence in the room, sitting on their chest, uh, stopping you from breathing, or 
interfering with your nuts. Some people get that. There's a present in the room sitting on my chest and interfering with my nuts. And if you look up the hag on Google Images, you'll see many paintings over the years, going back hundreds of years, of a terrifying old woman sitting on your chest. But sure, now that's just alien abductions. That's what an alien abduction is. And people who claim to have been abducted by aliens are merely in a half-dream, half-awake state and are confronted with the hag archetype, which, through technology, they have projected as an alien. But it's all the same crack, you know? I'm aware that some people do use this podcast to help them go to sleep. Why, I don't fucking know. But it has been brought to my attention that some people like to listen to my voice and this lulls them off into sleep. So please don't get freaked out there by speak of sleep paralysis. If you don't want sleep paralysis, just don't sleep on your back. It's that simple. They've done studies into it. It only occurs when you're in the supine position. And I no longer sleep on my back for that reason. Which is disappointing because I like it. When I was younger I used to not sleep on my front because I was afraid of my eyeballs sticking to the pillow. Um, Another archetype. And I'm going to get onto an extremely hot take now. A take so hot that I expect you to tell me to fuck off at the end of it. Um, Another archetype is the trickster archetype. Which is exists existed across all mythology of little pixies or fairies or goblins or whatever that would play tricks on the human population changelings in a sense they they were a little bit more sinister because they were you know they were fucking stealing children but they were still playing tricks to the point that often what uh was was recommended kind of folk me- remedies that were recommended to Irish people a few hundred years ago if you didn't want your children succumbing to the changelings would be to in- do really strange rituals like one woman was told to try and boil boil a thimble of beer in an eggshell or told to eat a chicken without taking its feathers off to perform acts so bizarre that it would make the fairies go, what the fuck is this person doing? I've never seen anything like that in my life. And to trick the fairies with weirdness. But anyway, in Irish mythology we have leprechauns. Now leprechauns, even though they're the most rec- internationally the most recognisable facet of Irish mythology, they're really only present in later Irish mythology. And if you're listening to this from Britain or Canada or America, we don't take leprechauns as seriously as ye do and I've heard I've, I heard an American call a leprechaun a leprechaun so fuck off so we, leprechauns aren't really a thing but where they kind of came from that is present in Irish mythology in a crowd called the Tuatha de Danann which were they were kind of just a weird kind of race of people they were the tribe of the gods and they were all different type of characters, but one of them was the trickster. It was small little beings that used to perform, play tricks on the early Irish people, whether by setting fire to their camps or going in and fucking rearranging the furniture or something, playing tricks. And the trickster is a Jungian archetype that is present across mythology in all cultures. Okay, Now here's my hot take. And 
I don't think I read this somewhere because I can't find it online. I think it came out of a a drunken conversation I had in a pub with somebody I know who studies folklore. But anyway, apparently there is a completely unconfirmed theory that cannot be proven. And I'm going to tell you this because when I heard it, I was like, fuck me, that's interesting. But anyway, apparently the the trickster leprechaun archetype in Irish mythology and why it exists so pervasively, these this race of little men that would pref- to play tricks on the people, is because when Ireland was first inhabited between ten and 15,000 years ago, it is possible that because it was an island that there was a race of actual small people like there's a thing called uh, there's island gigantism and another one called island microism or something but basically sometimes when an island is isolated the creatures on it are either massive or small in the islands of Micronesia you have the pygmy peoples who are about 4 or 5 feet tall so there is a theory that when the first people came to Ireland from Spain or whatever that there was a race of small human, possibly even hominid, like Australopithecus, possibly even an early type of Neanderthal that was very small. And when Homo sapiens arrived in Ireland, this race of small human fucked off into the hills because they were terrified and then got pissed off because they're like, who are these tall fuckers taking over Ireland? And they'd come down at night time and do raids on the camps and set fire to houses and shit. And that the pervasive, pervasive myth of the small trickster creature in the woods may actually based, be based in some degree of fact. And it was a a type of hominid. But sure, we'd have discovered their bones, wouldn't we? Maybe it was the Barbary ape. The 2,500 year old Barbary ape called Tony. That's a hot take, lads. If you go around saying to anybody blind boy said that there was a race of miniature neanderthals and that's where leprechauns come from if i hear someone on the internet saying that i've been saying that i'm gonna you're getting a a fucking you're getting a a dog shit in the letterbox i tell you that i did not say that ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I've presented it there as historical conspiracy theory that is to be taken with a pinch of salt. It's an interesting theory. It's fictional. Most likely not true. 
A lot of people have... Oh, my pop shield and my microphone is after coming off. Hold on. I have a little shield in front of the microphone and it is partly responsible for the podcast hug. On my microphone I have two shields. I've got one furry thing and the front of the microphone and then a separate shield that offers me two layers of protection and it allows me to get very close to the microphone like this to give you an intimate and close sound. But a lot of you have been sending me the story this week. I've received it in my inbox and on Twitter. About the life and death of Nigel, the world's loneliest seabird. And you've probably seen this because it went fairly viral online. But there's a species of seabird called a gannet. And off the coast of Australia, the Australian gannet, gannets live on little islands and the conservationists were trying to get more gannets to populate certain islands because the population was disappearing. So what they did is they put some fake stone gannets on the island. Okay, gannet is, is a, it's like a lanky seagull. It's white with a yellow head. So the conservationists put had one little island and they put on it one stone gannet painted white with a yellow head female in an effort to woo these other gannets to come down and populate the island because they'd be looking for a mate so it didn't really work except for one bird called Nigel and Nigel the gannet spent a lot of time on his own on this island performing mating rituals towards this stone lifeless gannet trying to mate with it trying to win its affections and Nigel died in January Nigel spent his life believing a statue to be another female and he died one of the loneliest loneliest deaths that we have ever um, seen and it's very very sad incredibly fucking sad because I don't know it speaks to our loneliness it speaks to our loneliness I, I like a lot of people resonated with this article a lot of people saw poor old Nigel and his efforts with this stone bird and it made us feel upset on a couple of levels number one there's the obvious one where you just feel sorry because he doesn't have the intellectual capacity to know that it's made out of stone. He's operating on pure instinct. The other thing is that I think on a sociocultural level, I think the story of Nigel resonates with us because I think it's the fear of falling in love online and not knowing if the person on the other end is real, which is quite common. A lot of people get caught with that. Where you're catfished. Nigel was essentially catfished and I think that's why that story is resonating with us right now is it's our fear it's our fear of being catfished the fear the fear not that someone will take the piss out of you but some people do fall in love genuinely fall in love online with someone they've never met and it could be bullshit that person could could be the could be lying about who they are and that's what happened with Nigel so that's my take on why the story of Nigel resonated with so many people 
But it's sad. Poor old fucking Nigel. He's dead. But however. The hottest take on the internet this week. Goes to. A woman called. Nicole Serator. Whose Twitter handle is mildly bitter. And Nicole is a journalist. And she wrote. She, she quote tweeted. The article about Nigel. And she wrote. This might be harsh. Since Nigel is now dead. But. Even concrete birds do not owe you affection, Nigel. Stop wooing a bird who is not interested. Then she linked to a now-deleted Facebook article where she'd written this article whereby she framed the story of Nigel trying to woo the stone bird as an example of rape culture. Now, I like my hot takes and I like my cultural Marxism. So from the perspective of if Nicole was trying to say that the the male author of the article had framed Nigel's story in in terms of you know not understanding that that the stone bird was saying no and being persistent if Nicole was making that take where it's like she's analyzing the male writer's framing of the story about the gannet then I'd be going tell me more I'm interested but however she made the crucial mistake and I have to paraphrase now because she ended up deleting it she said I mean how do we know that Nigel wasn't the paedophile of the Gannet world how do we know that Nigel wasn't a pedo that was banished to this island to live with a stone bird and I'm not having that and the internet wasn't having that because it's one thing to critically analyse the article but it's another with no knowledge of gannets, to accuse poor old Nigel of being a banished paedophile gannet. No thank you, Nicole. But the comments to her status and to her post uh, did restore a little bit of faith in the internet. Everyone was universally saying, fuck off, Nicole, delete the post, please. You're caught in a gannet a paedophile. And what bothered me the most then is she wrote underneath it, I'm available to write the feminist perspective on Nigel the Gannett's non-tragic death should anyone wish to pay me. Which uh, kind of unveiled what was going on there. But I'll read some of the negative comments that she got under her status before I go to my hot take. Someone wrote, Stop t- trying to woo an industry that is not interested. Maybe there's reasons you haven't been approached to write about this. Oh, Then... Another person wrote, It's really upsetting that you are calling everyone with objectophilia a rapist. Like, I'm not trolling here. You are literally calling humans who have a different sexuality the same thing you would call a person that forces a sentient being to have sex against their will. Gross. Another person said, We cannot and should not hold animals to human standards of behaviour. The behaviour Nigel exhibited is natural. And should be encouraged because that is how gannets reproduce. I will not have Nigel's name besmirched for exhibiting natural behaviours. Now, the author of the ridiculous hot take post, Nicole, she retracted some days later and claimed that it was satire. I don't believe her. I don't believe it is. I think what Nicole was exhibiting there is... Something that would be quite common in the offices of like 
BuzzFeed or Huffington Post, right? And it's something that pisses me off. Like, the, the, the internet culture and how it's been working, we'll say, since about 2014, is something goes viral, right? Then when it goes viral and gets a bunch of clicks for the article, we'll say, BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed will make something, a, a topic go very viral. Then once the traction for that viral, virility goes down, once people the people get tired of it, what happens after about four days is somebody comes out with another article to say that the initial thing that we all liked is now actually really, really bad. And then maybe, if you're lucky, you'll get a third wave of that where they'll counteract the point that it's bad and it's actually okay. And that's how it works. We get excited about something, someone writes to say that it's shit and you're a bad person for liking it, and then rarely a third perspective on that. And that is the cycle of clickbait viral. And there's already been documented articles about from workers in the likes of HuffPost or uh, Upworthy. But, yeah, the, the, how these companies have a, a brand image, an appearance on the surface of being dedicated to issues of social justice or issues of equality, whether it be race or gender. And the workers, who used, who, the journalists who worked in here in those places or the fucking the interns will say that these companies are actually simply driven by an algorithm. And they don't necessarily want to promote social justice. What they want is clicks from social justice. And as you know, I'm a, I'm a fucking SJW Marxist cook. And one thing that I always try and stress to people is clickbait sites are not helpful allies in any fucking social justice sense because... All they want is, is rage clicks. They, they purposefully frame issues of social justice or issues of equality in such a way that it just pisses people off. And all they're looking for is arguments in the comments. And these arguments in the comments, they make the article that's being argued about appear in more people's feeds and it gets more clicks and through those clicks they gain more money. And what I mean by that is, and you'll know this, this this has been our online culture for three years. They'll have an article about feminism that says, I have ten reasons why all men are trash. And that headline doesn't help anything. All it does is it causes men in the fucking comment section to write reverse sexism in large capitals and then someone argues underneath that reverse sexism isn't a thing and you just have a lot of people screaming at each other or they might have another article that says 10 reasons why white people need to be stopped in 2017 no one clicks in it just starts a big scrap in the comments and it doesn't help anything it polarizes what we have at the moment is massive polarization online of a left and a right where people are just screaming and roaring at each other and getting so emotionally hijacked that they've stopped having an actual conversation with empathy or understanding and you just have people screaming at each other and these clickbait social justice sites 
they're not allies. They feed upon it. Now, that's not a black and white take that I'm trying to make there. Because here's the thing. Sometimes I will see an article and it says 10 reasons white people need to be stopped in 2017. And I'll click on it and actually read it. And the, when you read the article, the journalist has presented quite a thoughtful, nuanced piece of work about race that has then made me, the reader, you know, confront... I'm, I'm then confronted with aspects of my privilege and I learn something about myself and that's a good thing. It's not really the journalists that are doing this shit. It's the people writing the headlines. The journalist doesn't always write the headline in a clickbait site. The headline is written by people who write headlines responding to an algorithm to get the fucking clicks. So when I was reading about the experiences of journalists who'd written these pieces on either gender or race, when they would see the headline that was put on their article, they'd fucking cringe. They're like, I don't want to call the article that. So it's something to always be cautious of. Always be cautious of... They're bullshitters. They're bullshitters. They just want to earn money from clicks. And the people that were working as journalists are saying it too. They weren't happy with their experiences. But Facebook have changed their algorithm towards video. So 2018 is going to be the year where click sites can disappear. BuzzFeed had to lay off 100 people there last year. Um, Is it time for an ocarina pause? We're an hour in. We're a fucking hour into the podcast and I have not done an ocarina pause. Usually, during this podcast, sometimes Acast, who are the company that put this podcast online, they insert digital adverts. And depending on your geographical location, you may or may not hear an advert. So what I do is I play a little piece of a Spanish clay whistle. And you may or may not hear the Spanish clay whistle, the ocarina. If you hear the whistle, it means you haven't heard an advert. Here we go. And this one... This one is dedicated to Nigel the Lonely Gannett. May his soul find solace in limbo. Um, I haven't done my drunk limerick aunt as Donald Trump in a while. And I won't do it this week because Donny has been silent. Donald Trump has been quiet because he's been taking an awful amount of credit for the stock market recently he's been the stock market has been doing quite well for about a month very well strangely well and he's been taking credit for it and most American presidents don't take credit for something so arbitrary but he has but unfortunately for Donny it took a fucking historically massive crash yesterday so if you take credit for it, you got to take the fall as well. So Donny's been quiet. So I've nothing to say for him. Oh, one thing I did need want to talk about. A group of artists called Subset. They did a beautiful mural of me. Um, in Andrews Lane up in Dublin. It's a giant mural of myself. And it's my bagged face beside a mural of Donald Trump. And it contains a quote from this podcast, which is... Donald Trump is more terrifying than a Jack Russell with human hands. So thank you very much to Subset 
for doing that mural it's very flattering and I asked them why they did it and they just said they were big fans of the podcast so fair play lads thank you um, Subset if you are online give them a follow Subset Dublin and give them your support because they hit the headlines during the year because they do these fucking unbelievably class murals on walls around Dublin murals that genuinely enhance the environment that murals that are so beautiful people stop and take photographs of them they take boring spaces and make them gorgeous but Dublin City Council consider this to be a violation of planning law and they paint these murals grey which is fucking shit so please support Subset Dublin uh, on their crusade of murals I'll read a few questions for ye. Um, I've mainly been asking the questions on Patreon because I don't know. I, I get better questions on Patreon because the people on Patreon have they're dedicated enough to give a few quid I think and a lot of the questions that I've asked on Twitter recently have gotten I've been given silly questions that I can't answer so I'm answering Patreon questions this week. Actually, no. Actually, I got a direct message on Twitter the other day with a pretty decent question and as I've mentioned before I get about 60 direct messages a day on Twitter and I'd love to reply to every one of them but I don't have time so I'm really sorry if I didn't get back to you but there's one question that came in from Alan and I happened to catch it when it came in when I checked my inbox this question came in and I'm really glad I saw it because it's a it's a a pretty I get a lot of personal stuff in my DMs, uh, especially from men, and this is a big question that I think a lot of people could relate to, and I want to try and tackle it if I can and offer something. So Alan said, "I had a question that I would appreciate your thoughts on. I'm working as an auditor for a big accountancy firm. I've been doing this job for approximately ten years." I've known since day one of my training that this job was not for me. Through one reason or another, I've failed to get myself out of it. I think the main reason was a fear of disappointing my mother. She was the main encouragement for me taking the financial route in secondary school rather than the construction route, which perhaps would have suited me much better. I'm going to turn 33 this year. I dislike my job to such an extent that most mornings I will wake up and my first thought will be, fuck this, I do not want to do this job any longer but it provides us with a very comfortable living. I'm afraid to leave that behind. I know this is stupid. I'm in a very happy and healthy relationship. I also know my partner will support me in anything that I want to do. What would be your approach? Getting over your fear and taking the leap of faith into the unknown. Well, first off, Adam, it's not fucking stupid at all. Um, that's a common... That's, a, that's un- unbelievably common fucking problem that you have there I know a lot of buddies who are in that situation Um, first off I mean you like the most important thing there is to, to redefine your notion of what we'll say success is Um, if you're if, if like fuck me man it doesn't matter what you're earning if if you're living your life based upon something your ma wanted to do 
it means that every day of your life you're you're not living to you're not living by your own standards you're not living based on an internal locus of evaluation it is an external locus of evaluation which is going to be detrimental for your self esteem um you know you're 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 living your daily life based on the approval of your ma right now it's not your ma's fucking fault either more than i don't know your ma but i'm gonna guess your ma wanted you to do that based on her own fear based on her her fear of just she wanted you to be comfortable okay and sometimes parents do that sometimes a parent will parent out of fear even though a parent parenting out of fear isn't necessarily going to result in, in the best conditions for the child, you know. But you're a fucking adult, Alan, and you've got nothing to prove to no one other than yourself. Getting up in the morning and doing a job, regardless of how much earn money it earns you, if every day you're not, that job isn't fulfilling something in you, if it isn't giving you a sense of personal meaning, then that's that's not a that's not a very happy existence do you know that's not and i i know you fucking know this because you said you're waking up every morning saying fuck this i don't want to do it one of the things that scares the living fuck out of humans the most is change all right so what you have to do now is to find the courage within yourself to make a gigantic change and leap into the fucking unknown there's practical elements to it. I mean, you said it's all right. It's good that your bureau will support you. That's fantastic. So, I would say to you for fucking twenty eighteen, take a measured, a measured leap into the unknown. And by measured, I mean save up enough money so that you know that if you do make a measured leap, you're not absolutely fucked. I'm sure you have a mortgage and shit like that. But understand right after you tot it up you're an accountant you'll be able to budget what you need and searching yourself what your fucking hobbies are what do you like doing you mentioned construction and look at those possibilities the other thing too is look at the skills that you've achieved as an accountant and look at what you can then bring to a new career but success is fucking happiness at the end of the day man that's what success is it's getting up in the morning going to bed at night and if in the middle you did you got paid for something that you actually love that's success and it doesn't matter what the how much money that is assuming you're not fucking getting the electricity turned off every month because you've no money that's you know you got to draw a line there i'm guessing but take a leap take a leap into the fucking unknown and the mantra that you should be telling yourself is that no matter how afraid you are of that change or no matter how afraid you are of, of, of doing something, you will cope, okay? That's all you got to say to yourself because your mind is going to tell you, your mind is going to catastrophize and your mind will focus on all the terrible, awful things that might happen. But if you plan properly, okay, all that's going to happen is that you're going to cope. Your standard of living might drop in terms of what you can spend, but you will be waking up in the morning, hopefully, with new challenges and a sense of meaning. 
the reason I suggest to you to fucking do it is I've got many friends who did do that and they're a lot happier now because of it. They went through a tough time when they made the change of a fucking career or whatever but they're happier now. You don't want to be looking back at this in 10 years and regretting, okay? And the only thing it'll do as well, man, it'll foster an unconscious anger towards your ma and remind yourself in order for you to make the leap into the unknown you also have to have compassion enough for your ma to understand that she pushed you in a direction that she believed was right she did it out of fear and love alright she didn't do it to be controlling she did it out of fear and love even if the outcome of that did appear to be somewhat irresponsible or controlling have that compassion for her have a bit of compassion for yourself and you're fucking 33 you're 33 Harrison Ford didn't start acting till he was 37 and he was in Blade Runner so fuck that have a crack at it go for it go for it every week I like to recommend uh, an album last week I recommended Scott 4 by Scott Walker I hope you enjoyed it This week, I would like to recommend The Dreaming by Kate Bush, who is, I don't think I need to introduce Kate Bush, one of the most amazing performers and singer-songwriters of all time. And that album was performed on a bizarre computer musical instrument called a Fairlight. It has quite a unique and strange sound. And I think Brian Eno produced it. Not sure about that, but give The Dreaming by Kate Bush a crack. Savannah asks... You spoke about people writing nasty comments online or trolling and other people while being nice people themselves. Why do you think people write nasty comments online? Um, yeah, what Savannah's talking about there is is like, I think I said it before, you know, I would be looking at comment sections under Irish political websites and I would see someone calling for fucking genocide against refugees and then I click on their profile and it's someone's loving grandfather with their Jack Russell dog I think the answer to the question is why do people write such horrible nasty things online in particular is because of dehumanisation Sigmund Freud in his book Society uh, or Civilization and its Discontents he kind of came to the conclusion that what was necessary for genocide to happen was for one side to completely dehumanise the other to reduce the other into nothing but a simple label labels are a great way to dehumanise somebody no matter what that label is you you give someone a label you remove their humanity and you can feel intense anger towards them so you get people online projecting all their hatred and anger not on another human being but on an avatar a completely stripped down dehumanised avatar coupled with the online environment that I spoke about earlier because of click journalism which fosters a polarised environment of hate and then yeah you get your granddad calling for genocide even though he's probably a nice man in the pub even though when you actually pressed him on do you really want to shoot all those refugees he'd probably go no not really no I I didn't think of them as people to be honest yeah that's a bit foolish online the online environment, it causes us to polarise, it causes us to dehumanise. And if you spend too much time in comment sections, it'll make you sad and upset. Because the more and more 
you engage in polarizing activity or take a black and white aggressive position on something the less you engage with empathy for or compassion for yourself or other people and that is not beneficial to your mental health emma asks any sign of spring appearing in your neck of the woods yes there is emma there's a, a fine little promise of spring happening the past week um it's still fucking freezing obviously but there's these little pockets of warmth you know you can feel the temperature rising slightly and i was in the people's park in limerick there last week and i can see the daffodils not their flowers yet but they're snaking up out of the ground and there's about an extra hour in the evening that i've been noticing so i'm very much looking forward to that i love a bit of spring it's usually shit until march and i know i spoke about december and november being tough but february and march can be pretty tough too because we don't have any festivals winter is given purpose uh, because of christmas we have this little festival but it can get quite fucking dark and cold in march and february um there's a cunty wind as well a very bitter cunty wind and sometimes we confuse ourselves and think that we need to wear less clothes than we need and it gets pure freezing anthony asks are there any differences between blind boy boat club and normal limerick guy name unknown does the bag give you an alter ego that maybe allows you to express yourself in a way that your non-bag face persona doesn't allow you um not really anymore maybe in the early days of the bandits but now well do you know no i'm i'm i wouldn't do as many hot takes in real life and i'm a very very quiet person and i keep to myself and keep my head down and mind my own business and don't do a hell of a lot of talking and the other thing sometimes people say to me online they think that my accent is put on and it's like it's not this is my real actual accent that i talk in every single day and do you know what it's never limerick people that say that because my accent isn't even a strong limerick accent it's a pretty neutral limerick city accent so i'm pretty much the same except ye only know me as someone who talks into your your ear for an hour and a half and i don't think i talk into anyone else's ear for a fucking hour and a half i sit back and watch and keep my mouth shut and don't do an awful lot of talking in real life um that's about it i suppose my accent has given me away in real life situations now because of this fucking podcast i've had a few situations over the past uh couple of months where i've been in restaurants or i've been a pub and people i can I, I just know by people beside me that they'll stop and their ears perk up and they can tell that it's me so that's a bit annoying because the bag has been doing a great job at allowing me to live the quiet fucking hermit life that i want to live and the accent is not doing that anymore now so that's fucking annoying russell wants to know when was the last time you cried laughing mine was watching reese shearsmith's bloopers from the program car share i must give that a watch because i do like reese shearsmith he was in league of gentlemen wasn't he um when did i last cry laughing the eric andre show yeah fuck it the eric andre show especially series three it got a bit 
got a bit shit at series four, but series one, two, and three of the Eric Andre show, they fucking, yeah, I cried laughing, watched it, that, there's two different types of laughs, there's crying laughing, because it's fucking hilarious, and then, there's the, laughter, that's, it's not even laughter, it's a dead silence, because what you've just seen, is such comedic genius, that it stops you in your tracks, and the Eric Andre show, that does that for me, because it just, it's the end of television, that's what that show is, it's the end of television, it's taking television comedy as far as it can go, and turning it in in itself, fucking genius, so that's the last time I cried laughing, I'm after going for a very long time this week lads, I'm seeing 75 minutes here, which is too long, and I need to go to bed, because I got a cool new book, about the history of the Crusades, that I'm going to read, and hopefully some of it will turn up in a podcast in a couple of weeks so I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast I can't tell if it was more mad or less mad at this stage now I should be making more of an effort for people that are recently listening because this is I realised after last week's podcast like it's, it's in no way accessible whatsoever to a new listener and Maybe that's what's making it work. I don't know. But I'm just going to keep doing it. Oh shit, yeah. The live podcasts are coming up. Now they're currently all sold out. But I'll tell you when new ones come up. But I'm going to be doing the first ever live podcast next Saturday. This Saturday. In Duncairn Arts Festival up in Belfast. And I'm going to have a guest on with me. Um, His name is Donzo. And he... What does he do? He's got an award-winning walking tour of the nationalist and loyalist areas of Belfast and the history of violence and the troubles. And I'm going to bring him on the podcast live in front of an audience and have a chat with him about that because I'm really interested in that because as a Southerner, all I know about the troubles is what I saw on the fucking news. So I'm really looking forward to that. So I'll leave you go. Have a lovely week. Have a nice morning. Be compassionate to yourselves. Compassionate to other people. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do subscribe to it and leave a nice review if you want. Yort, go in peace. Have a beautiful, beautiful day. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 